So what happens when one person desires something and another person desires something and they, their desires are clashing with one another? What happens if someone wants something and that conflicts with what someone else wants and they're in each other's way? There's so many examples I could think about throughout through history. One thing I was thinking about is, anybody ever heard of the Crusades? Some people, lots of people. Well, in the Crusades, uh, the Muslims uh, in the religion of Islam, they were wanting to expand and extend uh, Muslim to different places and different territories. And as it grew, they, they, they continued to take over certain territories that was starting to bother the Catholic Church. And so how do you think the Catholic Church reacted? Well, in their mind, because Christianity is the true religion, that meant that Muslims were threatening Christianity. And so they reacted with war. One thing they both wanted, they, they both wanted the land of Jerusalem. They both wanted, they were both eyeing that, the Holy Land. And uh, the desire, and, and the point of this is that the desire of the Muslims for Jerusalem and the desire of the Catholics for Jerusalem caused conflict. It resulted in war and violence. In our text this morning, we are going to see the desires of God conflicting with the desires of the unbelievers in Ephesus. And it's going to also cause controversy. If you guys remember last time, we talked about how the kingdom of God expanded in Ephesus that came through, uh, we saw how the kingdom of God was more powerful than demonic forces through exorcism. And Paul, in our text, he is still in Ephesus. Let's quickly look at verses 21 to 22. Uh, it says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Hakaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome and having sent uh, into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So what's happening here? These verses are describing Paul's future ministry plans. He's been in Ephesus now for two and a half years, and the church in Ephesus has been firmly established, and now he wants to travel to Hakaia and Macedonia to check on the local churches there. After that, though, it says that he wants to go to Jerusalem. Uh, if you guys read Paul's letters, he, he talks about bringing relief to the believers in Jerusalem. What was happening is there were many poor Jewish people in Jerusalem, and Paul wanted to unite the Gentile and Jewish church, and so what he would do is he would go around to all these Gentile churches that he had been uh, establishing in the ancient Near East on his, mission, on his roots, and he would collect funds from them, and he would take it to the Jewish people, and this would bring unity with them. It would show love for one another, and as Paul said in one of his letters that uh, that they have, the Jews have blessed you with spiritual riches, so bless them with your material wealth. But that's not his overall goal. Where does he want to end up? Well, it says Rome, but his main goal is to actually go to Spain. Uh, this Friday, I asked the question in sermon prep, 
I said, where does he want to end up? And everybody said, Rome. And one person said, well, actually, he wants to go to Spain. And I was like, yes, that's exactly right. You're the first person I've ever heard answer that right, because I've asked that several times before. And if you read Romans, what's happening is Paul is writing to the Romans because he is looking for a support church as he expands his gospel to go further west into Spain. And so he said, uh, what he tells him, he's like, I have fulfilled my work in this area. In other words, there's too many Christians, there's too many churches uh, for me to just keep going around in this area. It's been established. They can continue to build up uh, the believers in this area. I need to venture somewhere else. And so the point of going to Rome is to have a church that's going to help him in his future missionary journey. So why does Luke focus on Rome then? I think one of the points of Acts is that Luke is wanting us to see is that the kingdom of God is overtaking the Roman Empire. And in the first century, you would have seen this quite easily. Uh, every week we've seen in Acts, uh, Paul or Peter, they go to a different location, they build a new church, they establish new believers, and every, almost every week, almost every chapter anyway, they are confronted by some sort of authority, right? They're either in front of the Jewish authorities are either in front of the authority for this city or that city or, or this governor or whatever. They're constantly in front of all these authorities. And every time they're in front of these authorities, they share the gospel. But then they also add that Jesus is Lord. And he is saying that in the context of the Roman Empire, right? Jesus is Lord. And that's a statement against Caesar. And, and it ends, actually, when we get to the final chapter in Acts, it ends with Paul actually in Rome saying that Jesus is Lord right in the vicinity of Caesar. This is about kingdoms clashing. This is about the kingdom of God overtaking the Roman Empire. The Jews used to think that, uh, that the, the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans. Well, Jesus did, but he did it through love. He did it through peacemakers. And historically, actually, uh, the emperor, Roman Emperor Constantine, when he did uh, come to faith, he did make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And that's how we get Roman Catholicism. But the point is, here it just has Paul is planning to go to Rome. And this section, even though it narrates Paul's plans to leave Ephesus, the rest of our narrative is still in Ephesus. So let's move on to the next section, verses 23 to 27. I'm not going to read these verses. Um, but here we see that Paul's time in Ephesus has caused conflict. It's caused tension in this area. Verse 23 says that there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. What's the way? Well, I think they're probably getting this from Isaiah, where the way is often talked about as this new movement God is going to do. And I think they adopted it because the Christian movement was the new movement that God was going to do. And so they called themselves the way. It's just talking about the Christians and, and the gospel. But it says there was no little disturbance. It's another way of saying there was a great disturbance, right? Who was disturbed? Who was disturbed? In verses 24 and 25, we see that there is a silversmith named Demetrius. And he was upset. And so 
Demetrius, he got the local uh, silversmiths in the area and he gathered them, together, gathered them together and he wanted to have a meeting with them. Uh, it says, uh, for a man named, uh, which 24, it says, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar, similar trades. So, so essentially they're, they're having a meeting, right? And what did these silversmiths do exactly? Well, they were a guild, right? They were a guild that was devoted and dedicated to making silver niches and silver objects for the god Artemis. And, uh, well, who was Artemis? Well, Artemis was the beloved god of the Ephesians. He was pra- she was praised in worship in Ephesus. And you can see this at the very end of verse 34, the Ephesians are chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So Artemis was their god. They even believed that Artemis had uh, sent them a stone from heaven, and there was a stone in Ephesus, and they claimed that this was sent from, god, sent from the goddess Artemis themselves, uh, herself. Look at the end of verse 35. It says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? So how did a stone fall from the sky? I think this is just a rumor. I I think it's just simply a rumor. If you look in ancient Near Eastern texts, uh, some people say maybe a meteorite or something like that. If you look in ancient Near Eastern texts, uh, there's lots of different cultures that believed and they would say that their religious artifacts had come from heaven itself and it just fell from heaven. And I think this is just the same thing. I think they're just, just a rumor had started and all the leaders there are perpetuating that rumor. Ephesus also had a temple that was dedicated to Artemis. And this temple, it wasn't just any ordinary temple. It was one of the most beautiful, marvelous architectures of the ancient world. Who here has heard of the seven wonders of the world? Well, that's almost everyone. That's good. So there are actually two lists. There's a modern list of the seven wonders of the world that includes the, uh, uh, the Great Wall of China and some other things. But there is an ancient list, right? There is an ancient list of the seven wonders of the world. And on the ancient list was the Temple of Artemis. It was so amazing, it was so marvelous, uh, this, this temple uh, was so beautiful that it was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So the point is, Artemis is a big deal, right? Artemis is a big deal. These silversmiths, they're dedicated to Artemis. And when the, you, I told you that they would make jewelry or silver niches and they would Uh, for Artemis. What they would do, though, is they would take it and they would sell it to people in the temple who were overseeing the temple, and they would place it in the temple. They would also sell it to the citizens of Ephesus. Why are they disturbed? What's disturbing them? What is Paul doing that's disturbing them? Well, Paul, he's come in this city He's not only preaching about his God, which for them that wouldn't be too much of a problem, that's just one more God among all the other ones, but Paul is also going further to say that Artemis isn't real. Artemis is fake. Look at verse 26. 
It says, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. That's causing conflict for two reasons, right? Uh, one is that they genuinely, genuinely love Artemis. They genuinely love her. That was their God, and Paul's teaching is threatening to take away their idol, right? Paul's teaching is saying, uh, Artemis isn't real. You guys need to repent of this, and that's going to be a big problem because they love Artemis. And I have a question. Do you really think that Paul is going to come here into Ephesus with all this love for, uh, with all these people loving Artemis, with this temple that's a marvel of the ancient world, uh, with this sacred stone, and start preaching about Jesus and saying that Artemis is fake without any kind of trouble? No. It's going to be big trouble for Paul. But the second reason this conflicts with Paul, uh, with, with them, and the reason that the silversmiths are having a big issue with them is money. If the temple and the people are no longer buying silver niches of Artemis, that means they cannot do business. That means they cannot make a living. That means no more money. Their other God. And so Paul is causing two problems with this gospel. And if you look at verse 27, Luke neatly summarizes both of these two problems. It says, there is danger not only that this trade of ours might come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. God and money, right? God and money. What are they going to do? We see that God, through Paul, he has a desire. He has a desire for people to come to know Jesus. He has a desire for his name to be great in Ephesus. But the people there have a different desire. They desire to worship Artemis. They desire to make money. So we are seeing conflicting desires. What's going to happen? They come together and they decide to protest. And they do it at, uh, in Ephesus in a theater. Look at verses 28 and the first part of verse 29. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater. So imagine all of these silversmiths and all the people in Ephesus rushing into this theater and just rioting and protesting. Um, I actually have a picture of the theater of Artemis, uh, yeah, the, sorry, the theater of the Ephesians in Ephesus. This is also a, a great marvel of the ancient world, a wonder. It's not on the seven wonders of the world, but this is the theater that they were riding in. How many people do you think that has? How many people do you think that would hold? 25,000. 25,000. For context, this room holds 800. And so all these people 
Uh, thank you, Andy. I'm going probably take it down now. Thank you. Uh, but all these people, they are in the Ephesus theater, and they are enraged. They are angry. They are mad because Paul is preaching against Artemis. You would think maybe on, on uh, one hand, this isn't a, uh, a big issue for Paul. He's ran into all kinds of things like this in his ministry. He's been bitten by snakes. He's uh, been shipwrecked. He's uh, been stoned. He's had all kinds of things happen to him. But I don't think he's ever had anything like this happen to him, not to this level. In our text, a lot of things happen until verse 34. I'm just going to give an overall summary of that. One is the crowd takes Paul's companions, the people who are with Paul sharing the gospel. Uh, they also keep Paul from entering uh, the temple itself. If you see uh, who that is in the text, you're like, who, uh, uh, who it is is they are Roman authorities who were looking out for Paul as a Roman citizen. The crowd itself also begins to take it beyond just being mad at Paul this riot began to turn into an anti-Jewish riot, an anti-Jewish protest. And so when the Jews, they, they heard that it was turning anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic, uh, what they did is they put this man named Alexander up, probably an eloquent man, and they said, you know, you go up and you go, you go talk to them and, and sort of defend us. And when he goes up, essentially what I think he's telling the crowd is, the Jewish people have nothing to do with Paul. The Jewish people have nothing to do with Paul and his message. They're not the same thing. Look at verse 33. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense for the crowd. So Alexander defended them, but how did the crowd respond? Verse 34. When they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. How did the Jews get caught up in this? How did they get equated with Paul? Well, even though they didn't believe in Jesus, they didn't believe in Paul's gospel, they still believed in monotheism. They still believed that Artemis wasn't real. And so they got lumped in with Paul, and now this is just against Paul, against Paul's companions, and against the Jewish people who are believing in monotheism. So imagine this site, you're just, you're just seeing this theater, 25,000 people, I assume there's pro it's probably mostly filled, and everybody's just chanting and rioting and screaming, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. That'd be terrifying. One of my favorite basketball players was uh, Kobe Bryant, uh, who passed away last year. I remember when I used to watch him play, I remember every fourth quarter, every single time he would go up to the free throw line, it was almost impossible to not hear everybody chanting, MVP, MVP, MVP. And it's just, even whenever you're listening to it through the TV, it's just thundering and so loud. And, and I can't imagine what it would sound like in this theater. And so Paul's there, he's Everybody's chanting about Artemis. Everyone's against him. And at the height of the chaos, and this went on for two hours, in comes a town clerk to calm down the crowd. 
Verse 35 to 41, it narrates what he says. Again, I'm not going to read those, those verses uh, Gordon did. I'm just going to briefly go over. He has four ways that he calms down the crowd. He has four ways that he calms down the crowd. First, in verses 35 to 36, he reaffirms the crowd that it is undeniable that Artemis is real, right? He says at the beginning of verse 36, these things can't be denied. And, and so if you're wanting to calm down a crowd that thinks Artemis is fake, he's saying, he's, he's saying everybody knows Artemis is real. No one can deny this. This is so obvious, right? The second way he calms down the crowd is in verse 37. And he essentially lies by saying that Paul isn't actually saying anything negative against Artemis. He says, these men are not blasphemers of the goddess Artemis. Third, verses 38 to 39, he redirects them by telling them that if they have a problem, a riot isn't a way to settle it. If you guys have a problem, a riot's not the way to settle it. We have a court system, right? Go to the courts. You guys have an issue, take it up in the courtroom. Fourth, in verse 40, he calms the crowd by telling them that if they keep on rioting, the Romans are going to find out, they're going to come in, and we're going to be in trouble. They're going to be charged with rioting, he says. And if you look at this, this is actually good and solid reasoning. These are good arguments to get people to calm down. Reaffirm that the God is real, convince them Paul's not actually guilty, redirect them to the courtroom, and threaten punishment from the Romans, right? It's a good way to calm them down, and I, and I think they did. I think it worked. Verse 41, and he said these things, he dismissed the assembly, and I believe everyone left. Essentially what we're seeing again, we've seen week after week, is God is yet again rescuing Paul, rescuing Paul from another danger. I have a question. Why do people respond with hostility and anger when their sin is confronted or threatened? Why do people respond in hostility and anger when sin is confronted? It's because they love it, right? The amount you love something determines the amount of anger and hate you will have when that is threatened or taken away. The amount of love you have for something determines the amount of hate and anger you will have when that something is threatened to be taken away or is taken away. What we've just seen is the way that the world reacts when their desires are opposed. I want to ask you, what do you do when someone else has a desire that conflicts with your desire? How do you react? Well, that's not a simple question. It's different in different circumstances. But listen to what James says causes fights among us in chapter 4. Uh, Gordon read it. I'm going to read just a couple of verses again. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions or desires are at war within you? Your des you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain it, so you fight and quarrel. 
What he's saying is that there's this, there's this idea that within you, you have a desire, you have a motive, you want to do something, and whenever someone or something opposes that desire, you respond in sin. That's how fights start. That's how fights happen. But there are different ways we should respond when our desires are threatened. Application one, when other people's desires conflicts with God's desires, we as Christians should stand our ground. When other people's desires conflict with God's desires, we as Christians should stand our ground. If you are a Christian, a true Christian, you have been transformed. You have a new heart and new desires, and most of those desires should be good desires. And being upset, honestly, is a perfectly reasonable response in some circumstances. I remember in the military, um, after I became a Christian, there was a, uh, probably a couple weeks after, I remember one of my friends, he didn't really understand how serious I was about it, and I didn't know how serious I would be either, but he brought up this picture on his phone, and it was a nude picture, and as soon as I saw it, I just was filled with rage, and I remember just yelling, hey, why are you doing that, like screaming at him. One, that was shocking to him. Two, it was shocking to me. I'm like, what's, what's happening to me? What am I doing? Why did that make me mad? <laughs> but it did. And it, it was just an appropriate response, though, I think, because I don't want to see that, and I don't want women to be subjected to that. And, and it was strange to them because just a couple weeks le- earlier, I probably would have given them a high five or something, but it, it was different just two weeks later. And for you as a believer... You're supposed to love people. One thing John says is the way that you know that you've passed from death into life is if you love the brothers, right? You love other Christians. Well, that extends to all people. Jesus said we're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to love our enemies, right? And so as a Christian, if you love people, you must hate and be, hate it and get angry when you hear about a mil, nearly a million babies being killed every single year. That should cause a rage within you. What they do is, is actually horrible. And as a, as a new father, I have a ever-increasing and growing hatred against abortion and what it does. And it depends on what they do to these helpless babies. It is absolutely terrible. It depends on what trimester you're in, but if it's the first trimester, they stick a suction cup in there they destroy all and suck out all the amniotic fluid, and then they start sucking and uh, taking off all the limbs, the head. If it's the second trimester, they stick metal clamps in there, they twist the head off, twist the arms off. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And if you've had an abortion, and you're here, and you are a believer, you have not committed some unpardonable sin, there is grace for you. There is forgiveness for you. The point is, is that when I hear about that and I think about someone doing that to now to my daughter, like that just causes a rage within me. And when I hear about it happening to other babies, it causes a rage within me. It just makes me so angry. And I think for our purposes, a righteous anger is an appropriate response. 
And actively working in the world to end things like that is an appropriate response. What about other ways? When God, for instance, when he's mocked and ridiculed, what does that do to you? When you see God being mocked by unbelievers, ridiculed, how do you respond? What, what, what happens within you? I think we should, at the very least, want to defend him, like desire to defend him. If we love God and we see him being mocked, we don't want God mocked. They want God mocked. These are conflicting desires. I think we should want to defend him. As Peter said, be ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you. We're always upset when something, someone or something threatens something that we value or we love, and being upset about things like abortion or, or, or God being mocked, it just demonstrates that you love good things. You love righteous things. What about in relationships? What about when you have a desire and your friend, your spouse, family member has a desire that opposes yours? How do you respond there? And as, as, as James said, if, if our desires are strong enough, it's going to cause a conflict. It's going to cause an argument. So how do you keep from causing fights and conflicts within your marriage, within your friendships, within your family? Well, Paul gives us some excellent advice in Philippians 2, 3 to 4. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. He's saying that you need to consider the interests, the desires, the wants of other people. You need to consider that as greater than your own desires, right? So application point two, when other people's desires conflict with our personal desires, sinful or not, put their desires above your own. When other people's desires conflict with our desires, our personal desires, put their desires above your own. In your mind, what you want is that you want someone else's desires, their needs to take priority over yours. We talked about uh, the big issues of, of uh, like abortion and all these sort of social issues going on and, and God being mocked uh, and biblical issues. But often, I mean, what we're fighting about in relationships aren't these big issues, right? They're sort of trivial issues. They're often very trivial. Uh, people fight over dinner. We fight over what to watch. We fight over what to do. We fight over which way the toilet paper is going to go. Over is the biblical response, by the way. If you do it under, you are a monster. <laughs> Seriously, these things, they're just not important. And if you're a man here, and, and I just want to talk to you for a second. You are a leader of your family. And what that means, it doesn't mean that you're a dictator. The Bible's not saying that you're a dictator. That's not biblical leadership. 
God has placed souls under your care, and you should lead by setting a Christ-like example of putting your family's needs above your own. Wives, you should do the same for your husband. Put his needs above yours. If you can just get this idea in your head, your life, your life would radically change for the better. If your wife has some place she wants to go for dinner, go where she wants to go. Just be happy that she was able to decide what she wanted for dinner. <laughs> Sometimes that's a difficult issue for them. And I think there's a biblical reason for that, actually. Uh, last time they decided what was on the menu, the whole world fell into ruin, so maybe that's why it's a hard decision. But imagine what your relationships, what your family life would look like if today you decide in your mind, I'm no longer going to be seeking and insisting on having my way all the time. What if instead of seeking your own way, you just said, I'm going to actually take a genuine interest in what other people desire. I'm going to take a genuine interest in what other people are wanting to do. What if your joy started coming not from selfish ambition, but from seeing yourself like Jesus as you self-sacrifice for other people? Imagine the love and unity our church would have if we didn't constantly question you know, how is this church serving me? What if we started asking the question, how am I serving the church? What about instead of focusing on how we want the music to sound or something we want the pastor to do, and instead we focus on how am I going to build someone up today? And if you're focusing on someone else's desires, and they're focusing on your desires, can you imagine the kind of love and unity our church would have? Imagine you're doing that in your home, the kind of love and unity your family would have. When it comes to biblical matters, stand your ground. When it comes to trivial matters, I want you all to discover the joy of setting your needs aside and putting others ahead of you. Application three, when God's ways conflict with your desires, repent. When God's ways conflict with your desires, repent. Even as a believer, Jesus is confronting you today. What cherished, and as we, we, we come to Christ, there's so much sin in our lives, and even, even there's, a, there's a break from sin, but there's still a lot of sin there, and I think one pastor said that as you go through the Christian life, you think you're getting worse, but you're actually getting better. You think you're getting worse, but you're actually getting better. And what he meant by that is when you first come to Christ, 
God keeps you from seeing all the sin that you actually have in your life. And as you grow and you mature and you go deeper in your faith, he starts pointing out more to you and more to you and more to you. And then it becomes more to repent from, more to repent from. What has he revealed to you lately? What has he shown you recently that he said, I, I don't want that for you, I want you to let go of that? Please really think about it, focus on that, and, and repent of what he's calling you to do. If you have the Spirit of God within you, and, and I want to say if you don't have the Spirit of God within you first, and God is calling you and his ways are conflicting with your desires, you're going to respond with rage like they did in Ephesus, right? You, you don't you don't like that God is wanting you to get rid of that, it's gonna make you angry. And this is why I think you see many people, uh, the, you can see in interviews, videos, whatever, people are actually angry with God. And it's just because God is wanting to take away from them something that they cherish. So let's, he's not real, right? But if you do have the spirit, he will help you overcome what he's calling you to leave behind. He will help you overcome what he's telling you not to touch. If you're a Christian, Jesus says, you are mine. And what that means is that he wants to be first in your affections. He wants to be first in your priorities. He wants it all. He wants it all. He is Lord. And I want you to ask that question as we go to communion today. Is there anything that you're willing, unwilling to surrender to, to Jesus this moment? Is there anything in your life that you know the Spirit has been working on you, maybe for days, weeks, maybe even months, and you're just digging in your heels and you're saying, I'm not going to do it? I want you to consider what the Spirit's doing. And you need to repent from that. You need to turn from that. You need to be willing to let that go. If you're here and you haven't in your mind settled if you want to be a Christian or not, you haven't settled in your mind if you want to make the leap to uh, become a Christian, I want to say, I don't know exactly what you're holding on to this morning. I have no idea. Maybe your life goal, your desire is to be as rich as you possibly can. Maybe you just drift through life, not ever wanting to consider eternal things, important things. That was me. I never wanted to consider anything important. But I want to say, ask you this morning, if you give up those conflicting desires that you have with God, if you repent, if you submit to his will, if you surrender, you will be forgiven this morning. You have lived a life that is self-seeking, that has been going after what you want, after your ways, but thankfully Jesus didn't live for himself, he lived for us. 
We are self-seeking, but Jesus laid down his life for other people. He was, he's the prime example of thinking of others and, and, and putting others' needs above his own. And because of what he did on the cross, taking your sinful desires, taking your sin, that guilt, that sin was laid on him on the cross. And if you believe that he died for your, uh, for your sins, and if you repent from those sins, you will be forgiven. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Father, for making us new creations. Thank you for, as John says, in general, you know, Christianity can be difficult, but he says your commandments are not burdensome. They're a delight. You have changed us from thinking commandments are burdensome to delightful. And we want your ways. We desire your ways. And we pray, Father, that we would be more and more conformed to your will. We pray that if someone is here and they haven't made that commitment yet, that you would send your spirit working in their mind, working in their hearts to surrender themselves to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.